And one Sunday afternoon, my mom and I were at home with our dog. I was doing my homework. It was sunny and warm. It was September. And she was taking a nap when we had the first air raid. And I tell you, that's one noise you never want to hear in your life. Um, even though we were already in a war in a way, when we when you hear this horrible sirens howling and you know they're howling because there's danger coming, it's one of the scary worst things ever. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today I'm speaking with Anna Titer. She's a journalist and an author. Welcome, Anna. Hi. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I'm so excited too. And I should mention you have a podcast uh, named uh, Thank You Mama. Yes, I interview women from all over the world about the most valuable lessons they learned or haven't learned from their mothers. And it's very exciting. I'm very <laughs> in love with this project. I love that you also add that they have or haven't learned from their mothers. Do you get a cross section or would you say, actually, I should say when you began the project, did you intend for it to mostly be sort of a gratitude and thankful podcast and then no. you discovered otherwise? No, no. I started the project because I started writing a book about uh, most valuable lessons I learned from my mama. And... Uh, in my book, I also write a lot about what she wasn't able to teach me and why. So that was always a very important aspect for me, not to glorify mothers, mm. but to really try and get a very um, objective, in a way, objective haha, picture of <laughs> what, <laughs> what and how we learn from them, you know? Yeah. And is that book in progress now or is it already it, available? It no, it's not available. It's still in progress. In the meantime, it decided it's going to become a biography of my 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 mother, who was a movie star and a and a very famous visual artist as well in Croatia. So, I it, the book decided that it won't only be lessons, but through the lessons, I'm writing a biography of her life now. Oh wow! <laughs> Isn't it interesting with writing how the projects or maybe art in general? or maybe even projects in general transform as we, as we approach them, right? Like it's, it's basically it's told beautiful. you. It's so beautiful. My husband is also a writer and he writes in a very different way than I do. He likes to outline everything and know where he's going. And I'm so in love with this aspect of writing where it just takes a life on its own and it decides what it wants to be. I, I'm, I'm madly in love with that, that aspect yeah. of writing. I think it's also important. I, I don't know that all of us, I mean, I'm a writer too, and I don't know that I've always in my writing been open to that change. I think that it depends on your your approach. And I think that it's a lesson to be learned sometimes that you have to listen to what's happening as you create. Definitely. Definitely. So your mother, uh, before I launch into learning about your work, can you talk a little bit about your mother being a movie star and obviously you're, you weren't born in the U S. So can you talk a little bit about your background first and the, the growing up with your parents being artists? 
I was born in Yugoslavia, which does not exist anymore. Yugoslavia has, in the meantime, divided itself into its six original republics. Croatia is one of them. I was born in Croatia. Yugoslavia was a very, very interesting country because its president, uh, whose name was Tito, Mm-hmm. Uh, managed to balance between East and West, between capitalism and communism. He was he managed to create this country that truly existed between worlds, which I find fascinating. And I wrote a whole book about this. My second book is about my childhood in Yugoslavia um, because we had six different republics, I don't know by heart, but I think five different languages, two different scripts we wrote in Cyrillic and in in Latin. Um, We had different religions, very different mentalities and cultures, and we all lived happily (laughs) Mm -hmm. in a country uh, for over 50 years. And then, you know, that's interesting that you say happily. Would you say, so that was your experience then. And when you look back on it with adult eyes, with uh, many more decades behind you, would you still say that you could generalize that it was a pretty happy existence for most people? You know, Ronit, it's a very, very complex question because... Uh, not everybody agreed with Tito's regime and not everybody agreed with his philosophies. And the country now, Croatia, is divided into people who say this, we lived well, we we lived a very safe life where everybody had a roof over their head, everybody had a job, schools were free, universities were free, my ballet was free, mm-hmm. um, everybody had enough, there was safety for everybody, everybody had a good life. Nobody had luxury. My mom was a movie star, and but that didn't mean anything financially. You know, we lived the same life like people next door whose mom worked in a factory. Um, so, and also because it was constructed out of these six different republics and six what now are different nations. Um, we did not, we were not allowed to glorify nationalism. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, what happened is nationalism, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, the Berlin Wall fell and Yugoslavia fell apart and uh, republics became aware of their nationalistic identity and started celebrating that and identifying with that and not with Yugoslavia. So Croats were all pro-Croats and Serbs suddenly were all very Serbian. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also people wanted to believe that capitalism is the solution and that life will be better in capitalism. Nowadays you have divided people. Some people say life was way better then, although we did not have luxuries and certain freedoms, we still led led safe and peaceful lives that gives us space to enjoy life in a way, you know, and to, Mm -hmm. to, 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 to dedicate time and energy to ourselves and, and our good life. You know, when you don't fear about your mortgage and, you know, your job and how you're going to pay school for your child, you do have more energy and more time to concentrate on other things, whatever Mm -hmm. you decide it to be. Mm -hmm. 
but then other people say Tito was a dictator and, you know, we, did, did, we didn't have the right to celebrate being Croatian and we didn't have certain freedoms. So it's a very... Mm-hmm. It's a very complex it's a complicated, question. Yeah. But your <laughs> early memories, because you left and I know you're, you're going to talk about that, but your your feeling about your life there was that it was a good one? Yes. Yes. My feeling, and I, I can say for my parents, uh, we all, especially after we experience what life in capitalism means, we all kind of look nostalgically at, at life, at our life back then. Again, my parents were part of, you know, the artistic and intellectual crowd. Maybe that's why we experienced it differently. Maybe somebody who was, <clears throat> I that I, I I don't know. Maybe yeah. we are just very subjective. So your your orientation to the arts when you were growing up was it a positive feeling? How did you feel about your parents being artists? Um, uh, my parents. Now I'm grateful for that. When I was younger, I I didn't appreciate it. My parents were both very in love with what they were doing and very successful at, at what they were doing. My mother was discovered at the age of 17 um, as a film actress. She was invited to come to a uh, screening test and immediately got her first major role and then started winning awards already with her second movie. And while she was filming and while she, you know, was working on movies, she started attending the Academy of Fine Arts and parallel to her career on film, she started a career as a visual artist and and started her, her own exhibitions and she she had two parallel and amazingly successful careers. She won awards both for her art and her graphic design um, and as, as an actress. And my father was an architect, very passionate about his work, and he was winning awards as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was... You know, when you're a child and you grow up in, in 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 a circumstance like that, you take it for granted. It's it it, it is what it is. You don't you you don't think it's different or strange. Or I was very proud of them, and they were both relatively famous. And I I had a feeling that they are contributing something special to to the society. But um. It was kind of, yeah, that's their work. That's their life. Did you think at the time that you too had artistic abilities? Yes. You know, my parents were always pushing it with me, especially my mom. (laughs) Whenever I painted something, it was the most beautiful painting in the world. (laughs) And then I started ballet at seven. We all did. My mom did and my grandmother did. It was just, we all, you know, I started ballet. Um, and, and my mom pushed that a lot as well. And I'm very grateful for that because I'm still dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, and at one stage I, I danced professionally in a theater. Um, so that was always kind of taken for granted that I will go the same direction. And all my teachers at school also did, you know, everybody was pushing me into arts and, and <laughs> concentrating on that. So when I turned 14, back then in Yugoslavia, the high schools were focused on certain professions, so to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I 
it wasn't even a discussion that I was going to go to the arts high school, <laughs> the high school for, for applied arts. So I did that. Um, in the meantime, my father left to work in Vienna, Austria, and my mom became more or less, you know, as, um, I'm missing a word in English. The mothers who take care of their children. Single, a single mother. Single, yeah. And it was, and the, and you know, the country was falling apart. It was very hard for her to make the ends meet with what she was doing with her graphic design at that time. And I, at one stage, I decided this is not, I, I, I remember me saying to her, I don't want to be a poor artist like you. <laughs> Right. Which is funny because she was a movie star and very accomplished. And yet, yeah. So did, during this time when your father was gone, did he provide any economic support? Did you? He did. Yeah. He did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he did. And you also struggled with scoliosis. I did. When I was nine, just before or just after he left or they separated, um, I was diagnosed with scoliosis, which was already quite advanced, I was immediately put into braces, back braces that were just hor horrendous. <laughs> Those metal things that were keeping, you know, that covered my whole torso and kept my head up. Did and you they have were to also sleep with it? I did. They're 23 hours a day and they were sometimes so painful. I would, I would have open wounds on my back. Like it was, it was bad. And it's a time when, you know, when you become aware of yourself age nine to age 14, the, it was not only physically horrible, but it was also stigmatizing because everybody would look at me and in school and ask what it was. And I always had to mm -hmm. explain what it is. And it was, it was not fun. I was still allowed to go to ballet, thankfully. Mm. How did your mother, how did your mother respond or support you during those times when you had to wear it and you were in pain? You know, my mom was always, my mom is the most amazing mom in the world. <laughs> mm. She was always endlessly supportive of me. And what I, now that I became a mother, find amazing is that she managed to stay true to herself and to her work and her friends and her, her identity, but in the same time, give me this endless support. Mm -hmm. She was very, very supportive. She was, um, the problem with her was she would be too soft sometimes and be like, just take it off if it hurts too much. Mm. Yeah, it it is what it is. I, 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 it must be terribly hard for a mother to see their yeah. child yeah. suffer like yeah. that. Yeah. And so you did end up having surgery, I right? I did. When I was 14, they decided it's getting worse in spite of the, the, um, brace, which is very demoralizing. You know, you go through six years of wearing this thing yeah. and going to physical therapy and everything. And then as a crescendo at the end, instead of being awarded, they're like, and now you go to this surgery. The surgery for scoliosis is really horrendous because they literally stretched my spine out for two weeks at the hospital before the surgery. I, they would tie me to the bed and hang. Every day I would get one kilogram more and they would oh. literally like physically stretch me out for two weeks. Oh. <laughs> and then 
while you were like just the whole time you're yeah, in the hospital, you're being you're stretched to the bed. Basically, I mean, you can untie yourself and go to the bathroom and and go to physical mm. therapy, but most of the time you're lying there with these weights on your head, mm. stretching you out, and then the surgery itself is bad. Not only because you know it's scary. But they stretch the spine out again at the operating table, and then they they put this long rod along the spine to 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 fix it as stretched out as they could could have gotten it. But then they have to wake you up, so because they want to check if you can consciously move your limbs. And they warned mm-hmm. me ahead of the surgery. They were like, "We'll wake you up. You'll be on the operating table. Your spine will be open." And we'll ask you to move your legs and your feet, your your arms, and that's. I remember oh, wow. yeah, that's what they did. Um, Were you afraid? Very. I was so afraid actually that I got very high fever before my first sur- before the surgery, and they had to cancel the surgery. I I psycholo- like I got a psychological fever of how afraid of what I was. And then when I got the second appointment for the surgery and I had to go through the back stretching again. So I did this twice. When I got the second appointment, they learned and they gave me a sedative already in the room without me knowing it. So so that I wouldn't get so scared to get a fever. That must have also been very hard for your mother too, because I know as a mom myself, you want to you want to trust in the doctors and the surgeons and believe that they know what they're doing. uh, But you also, you want to make sure you're tuned into your child. Yes. And you know what I liked about my mom, and I'm trying to do this with Kai, is she was always very strong for me, both when she was suffering and during her last days with cancer. But but also for, for me, when I was going through this, she was always very strong. She would never show me that she's scared or suffering or crying or but when she was allowed to take a peek into the recovery room after my surgery I remember her just breaking down when she saw me afterwards she just couldn't Mm -hmm. keep it together anymore it was yeah Mm -hmm. well I imagine I mean I don't know exactly what your condition was when when she first saw you outside of the Surgery. I, mean, I, I don't know. I was just half conscious and lying in bed, you know. And then I was a week after the surgery, they put a cast on me, a full torso, like a full body cast. So I had to wear a cast for six months. And then I had to wear another back brace for another six months while I was training my muscles back. I had to go to, to hmm. the hospital every day to gain the, the muscles again. Mm-hmm. And um, and I did it. <laughs> a year after I got rid of my cast, I I was I was already a year after I was on the stage. I went back to dancing. I think while I was still wearing the back brace, and a year after my surgery, or maybe two years after my surgery. I was on the stage and I, it, it, those were some of the happiest moments in my life. I was just so happy to have all of that behind me and to be able to dance and be on a stage again, you know, it was, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Do you think that early experience, um, you've been without the cast for so long now, but do you think that that experience stays with you it in does. a way now? It does, definitely. You know, it's so... Both this and the war that I experienced, which I guess we'll talk about later, 
makes it easier to be grateful and happy with a normal, just a normal life. You know, to appreciate things mm -hmm. when they are normal, when you are not in pain and when you are not in a cast and when there are no bombs flying around you. Um, yeah. Can you talk about when the war reached yes. your so town? I, the Berlin Wall fell when I was in the hospital recovering from the surgery. And immediately after uh, changes started happening in Yugoslavia, they allowed for the first democratic elections. And from that moment on, you know, the chaos started basically. And um, the republics were asking for more and more independence from the state. Um which gradually led to a war. Serbs occupied parts of Croatia. Croatia responded to that. Uh, parallel to that, things started happening in Bosnia. And, you know, we were watching all of this happen and parts of, we were watching parts of our country being under siege and people dying and, and bombs flying, flying around and sniperists. And it was, it, it was a serious war, but it was in other parts of Croatia. And we naively thought, and this is one of the main lessons I've learned in my life, is that it's way too easy to say, oh, it won't happen to us. You know, oh, it, it can never happen. Mm -hmm. Everything can happen. It can happen. Um, and it happened mm -hmm. so quickly, you know, it happened within a few months uh, that it spread out. And one Sunday afternoon, my mom and I were at home with our dog. I was doing my homework. It was sunny and warm. It was September. And she was taking a nap when we had the first air raid. And I tell you, that's one noise you never want to hear in your life. Um, even though we were already in a war in a way, when we when you hear this horrible sirens howling and you know they're howling because there's danger coming, it's one of the scary, worst things ever. And mm -hmm. again, it, with, we, it, it, it surprised us. We shouldn't have been surprised. You know, now, now I would never allow a thing like that to, to surprise me anymore. But it surprised us. We mm -hmm. we grabbed our most essential and valuable things and took the dog and ran into the basement with all of the other neighbors and spent the next few hours sitting in the basement listening to these fighter jets. And I still have a problem where in Seattle here when Blue Angels have their you know thing in the summer, oh. I I burst into tears. I can't I can't deal with it. For me, that's, it's insane that you can look at this and applaud these jets that are made for killing people. Yes. It's, it's just. <laughs> yes, I understand because I hear them too. And we talk about it, my husband um, and I, yeah. So we were in the basement. Thankfully, they did not bombard Zagreb at that first arid. And at that stage, my dad was already in Vienna. He had a very good job in Vienna. He worked, her worked as an architect. Um, I, maybe because I was already so injured through the experience with my surgery, I had a very difficult time. I was for all this, I don't know how many hours, it must have been six hours, five hours that we were in the basement. I was just shivering uncontrollably 
in fear. I, I had mm-hmm. pictures of everything I've seen until then in my head and just saw our house in ruins and my mom killed by bombs. And, you know, it was just, I could not mm-hmm. deal with the fear. And my mom said, once this is over, we'll take the train and go to, to, to your dad in Vienna. So once the air raid was over and Zagreb was still in a complete blackout, it's it's very scary and surreal seeing a big city in a blackout. We packed our yeah. things and we thought we are leaving for a few days. We really thought this is a one-time thing and we'll come back in a few days. I packed my ballet bag with a pair of jeans and a few pairs of un- fresh underwear and... Um, we managed to get a taxi to drive us through a through a blackout through the dark city onto the train station. And very dramatically, we took a midnight train, everything in a complete blackout mm. to Vienna. And mm-hmm. yeah, and here we come to, to your podcast. Here we come to that moment that changed my life. You know, it was one Sunday mm-hmm. afternoon, sunny Sunday afternoon, and suddenly my life changed completely. We came to Vienna and we were waiting and waiting and the things were just escalating instead of getting better. And because I lost a year of school already because of my surgery, my parents were really adamant that I should start school. And um, the nice thing is I was allowed to, I got a grant as a war refugee to go to the American International School in Vienna. Um, because I didn't speak German and which was my childhood dream. I have cousins who moved to Amsterdam many years before I moved to Vienna and they went to an international school in Amsterdam and they were always telling me about an international school. And that for (laughs) me was the childhood dream. It was just, oh, if I could go to an international school where you speak English and there are kids from all over the world and teachers from all over the world. And it's crazy how... I had to experience the war and lose my country and my home and everything for this to happen, you know? (laughs) Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And so then you spent the next, the next bit of your young adulthood there. 21 years in Vienna out of the... I I left for a few days and spent 21. I went to, I finished my high school. I went to university um, I chose to study marketing management to a big shock, my parents' big shock. They, uh, <laughs> <laughs> why? I mean, because why did you do it? <laughs> I, I guess it was a late rebellion and I was just like, no, I won't be an artist. I want to earn, I was seriously like, I want to be a businesswoman and I want to earn money. I found marketing very interesting. Mm-hmm. I still do. Um, so I started marketing management and then I did my MBA. I, I worked at the United Nations for four years. And after I got my MBA, I, I started my corporate career, building my corporate career. Back then I was dreaming about becoming the CEO of Disney Studios one day. <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny now looking back i'm like jesus i would be so miserable if i became a senior of business students <laughs> so i uh started working at one point at the um, 
at Austria's mobile phone network. It was just the beginning of mobile phone networks. And it was a fun show because back then the mobile phone networks were like money printing machines. You know, it was new. And it was just mm-hmm. happening and it, it was quite fun and amazing. And we acquired other companies in six other countries and it became my um, main job. I worked up to become a international marketing strategist. So, so are you saying that you you achieved this level, which you were proud of and you had you you had strived to achieve and you enjoyed aspects of it. I did. But, but are you saying that as time went on, the actual getting in to do the job became more and more of a pressure? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I loved, it's funny. I loved my work. Like I loved what I was doing. I didn't love the environment mm-hmm. I was doing in, in. You know, the environment was very, very harsh on me. I think if I was doing what I was doing in a smaller team, in a smaller office, in a more relaxed environment, I I would have just thrived there. But being part of this huge company with thousands of people with very strict, you know, rules and politics and backstabbing and just it was tons of works, meetings, business trips, sexual harassment, you know, the whole, oh yeah. Yeah. So how many years into your career there did things start to change for you? Um, 12, 11 years into my career, I felt like, I think I'm, something's wrong. I think I'm, I'm not happy. I'm getting slightly depressed. I read somewhere, somebody sent me some kind of a newsletter about burnout or something. And I remember contacting the person who sent it, who was a therapist specialized in burnout. And I quickly described how I'm feeling. And he said, look, I I can just quickly, I think you're burning out at your job, Mm -hmm. you should change certain things, you know, come into therapy or let you, you need to change things in your life. Mm -hmm. Um, And you were single at this time? I was always single before I met my husband most (laughs) of the time. Yeah, I was. um, And then I decided maybe a good change would be to change into something more creative. Um, and I got a job at Ogilvy & Mather, the advertising agency, mm-hmm. thinking that advertising will give me that creative environment I was craving, a smaller creative team and, and you know, more fun topics. Um, but that didn't help either. Um, and parallel to this, as I started working at the advertising agency, I was very sick at one point. I had flu, a flu and I was stuck at home for a while. And I lived in this very fun, big apartment building with a lot of single people, young single people, most of them gay. And we all became very good friends and had went through some quite funny experiences and stories with each other. And one day stuck at home with flu, we were talking about we were remembering fun things we experienced in the house. And I thought somebody said we should write this down so we don't forget it. And when I went back into my apartment, I thought I'm stuck at home. I have nothing better to do. I'll just write these things down. And I took my, I always write with a, with a fountain pen. I, I, I started writing it down and I still remember so vividly the black ink, the shine of the black ink of the first letter I ever wrote down for this. (laughs) Um, And 
I was writing and writing, and then I had this idea that we could turn this, I could turn this into little booklets for Christmas um, as presents for the neighbors. And that's what I did. I, I continued writing and wrote a bunch of short stories about the house and our funny experiences in the house and put our pictures in there and created this little booklet and they were a huge hit (laughs) 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 and they were a huge hit and I just couldn't stop writing I continued writing every evening my life started changing every evening when I came home from work I would just sit down and write and every weekend I was writing up until then I was very I was partying a lot and very social and went out a lot and was traveling and shopping and, you know, I had my girlfriends and had this crazy social life. And once I started writing, I, I discovered this amazing bliss of just being there by myself and with my work and my words. And it was, it was the happiness that I've never felt before. I was just so happy just sitting and writing by myself. Hmm. Months later, I I wrote a a manuscript of like 300, 800, 380 uh, uh, pages or something. And I just finished it and put it in my drawer. I I never thought I would become a writer. This was just something that was fun for me to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And then months later, I drove to work one morning And here's my second moment that completely changed my life. (laughs) Um, I entered the car and started driving and I started crying and I could not stop crying for three days. I just, I, I just lost it. I was crying nonstop for three days and I could only say, the only thing I could say was, I just can't, I can't. And I went to see my, my general practitioner and he sent me to a therapist and everybody thought I'm, I, I was depressed and wanted to put me on antidepressants. But I felt very, very deeply that it's not depression, that it's exhaustion from work. And now looking back, I understand that through writing, I understood that I'm in a way wasting time in those offices, you know, that I, mm. I, I felt what the creative bliss means Mm -hmm. and it was getting harder and harder to put my energy anywhere else I went on a sick leave and slept for like 15 hours a day for a few weeks and then I decided it was clear to me that I want to give it a shot I just I, I, I knew that if I go back to my corporate life, that it's going to ruin my life, that it's going to be the end of me. Um, not in a dramatic sense, but that, you know, I will just live this empty, unhappy life. And and I at did, this point, did you, did you connect with your mother or your father about this? Did yes. they chime in? Do they know yes. what was happening? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. My mom was as always very supportive. She came to visit. She, at that stage, she went, she was living in Croatia. She left back to Croatia when the war stopped. I was still in Vienna. So she came to stay with me and, um, she decided to take me. We have a house on our, on a island where her family comes from. We have an old family house and this is where we both, she and I, and thankfully my son now are the happiest in the world when we go to our Aww. island. And, um, she took me there and this is actually on the island where I had this 
moment of knowing, okay, things have to change. I'm changing things. I'm changing. This is my one opportunity to become me. (laughs) I don't know how else to put it. This is my one opportunity to become me, or I can go back to corporate life and just act some kind of anatider, other anatider, you know? Um, and with her absolute and full support, my, my dad was always more, my dad always liked playing the safer, you know, playing it on the safer side. And he's like, oh, you can't leave your job and you have your apartment and you have your costs, you know, you're paying for your apartment, blah, blah, blah. And you have this big salary and you're used to it. And he was, he was very nervous about me leaving the job. Um, but she gave me her absolute and full support and that's what I did. And from that moment on, you know, it's, I know it sounds kitschy and I'm reading it in all these spiritual books, but really when you choose yourself and find your path, when you put that foot on this first, you know, stepping stone, things just start opening up. Things just, things just magically started opening up. I, my friends were, started pushing me to get the manuscript out and send it to, to publishers. So I, so I printed out the biggest publishing houses, the list of publishing houses, and I decided to go from top down and having read writer's market, I'm like, okay, I'll need to send it to like hundreds of dozens of places before I get any kind of response. So I thought I'll start from the best publishing house and I'll just go down from there. And I send it to them and like, a week later, I got a phone call. I still remember being on this phone call where they called and they're like, we want to publish this right away. Wow. <laughs> it was crazy, crazy. And then the book was getting published and I thought I'll start, you know, try as a journalist. So I sent some some te- texts I wrote that weren't even real essays, some thoughts thoughts that I wrote down and I sent them to a magazine in, in, um, Vienna, Austria. And I said, you know, this is my writing sample. Maybe we could meet for coffee to see if I could, you know, write something for you. And same thing. The, the editor called me a few hours later and she's like, I love this so much. Can I publish it in our next, in our next issue? It, and it just continued. It was crazy. The same thing happened with the Austrian publisher. Um, and I write this essay that I sent to the biggest Austrian newspaper about how my childhood in Yugoslavia, how I grew up under Tito and Yugoslavia was this kind of alternative. They publish it and it becomes an instant hit. The newspaper has never gotten so many, so much feedback and so many comments before. You're in your thirties at this point or your twenties when this is all happening? I am in my mid thirties. I'm like Mm -hmm. 30 something 30 and you're able to follow this passion and to do the work you don't have other obligations it's yeah no no I at this stage I can just leave my passion and it was amazing I decided I'm going to do a PhD I applied to the University of Vienna um, and started a PhD in communication studies and sociology about singles, <laughs> about <laughs> singles and uh, uh, the capitalistic system and singles. So I, everything just started happening for me. You know, Every, it was amazing. I started writing for the biggest Austrian and German newspapers. Um, it it was it was fantastic. And then knowing that I have this grant. 
I decided to follow other dreams as well and applied. Uh, I applied to New York City Ballet. Back then they had a workout uh, program called New York City Ballet Workout. And I decided I want to start teaching that. I was I have been doing this workout for years on that stage and knew it very well. So I applied to New York City Ballet for that and got accepted there. <laughs> it was <laughs> so crazy. And I flew that summer. I it was I it was I was so happy. I flew to New York to dance to you know dance in New York City ballet and learn and get the uh, certified so I can start teaching their workout while I was working on a new book and while I you know was on this grant and it was just amazing and this is the summer I met my husband. <laughs> and a year later, a year later, I went, I moved to LA to stay with him or a few months later, six months later. Or so I was like, okay, I'm still on this grant. I'll sublet my apartment in Vienna and I'll just go and move to LA with Nick and see how this goes. And here we are. That's been 10 years ago. We are married and have a beautiful son and I'm talking mm -hmm. to you. <laughs> so okay so here you are and you have basically like all you need to do is you come up with a goal and then it seems like within a matter of years you get to just check mark that goal but you know what because <laughs> you, you did know it. what running I think for me at least I think the trick with this whole story is, is to find that one thing that you're meant to be doing and that's the trick mm-hmm you know, I think that's the part that's not easy. I have plenty of friends who are still in their corporate jobs and they're, they're like, I want to do something else in my life, but I don't know what. I find myself I, very blessed and I'm very, very grateful that actually this writing found me in a way. You know, I mm -hmm. I don't know how it works when, when you have to decide and find that thing. Yeah. For that, I don't have answers, unfortunately. And I also wonder, you know, how much of, how, you know, when you were talking before about your life in Croatia and pursuing all the things you pursued and also ballet, and I wondered how much of your orientation to achieving things was a personal family trait, a trait in you alone, and how much might be not being American. Like, I just wondered, do you have any thoughts about your, your perseverance and your well-roundedness in relation to who you are individually or who you are being from Europe or who you are from being in your family? Do you think it's just specific to you? Hmm. No, I, I think I definitely... I think I was able to recognize what was important because my parents were following what was important to them. I wonder if my parents weren't my parents and if they weren't, you know, following their passions and successful, successful with their passions. I don't know if I would have had the guts to, to do that, you know, when I decided for writing. So that, that there right because you had the guts too to to well you had the insight as well to see that you were suffering yes. in yeah. the corporate world and to hear it in you know in your body and your mind and then take action and I think what you were kind of referring to before is that maybe not everyone has those resources or even if they they do hear the call they don't always get to follow it 
Yes, but but to come back to European versus American, um, you know, life is safer and easier in Europe because you do have that social network that catches you when you fall. I think people in America do not burn out because just because they don't have the luxury to. You can't just burn out and, you know, not pay mortgage on your house and your child's university and all the big costs and lose your and lose your health insurance and all the other things. I think, yes, I think it's my path was my path because I was in a safe European situation where I was allowed by the social safety net around me to take that risk to say, look, I'm, you know, I'm going to leave my job and I'm going to be gone sickly for a while and then I'll be unemployed and I can still pay with unemployed money in Austria. You can still pay your, you know, basic bills in your apartment. You don't have to, you know, you can still survive. You're not on the street and you have your health insurance and everything. So in a way, I think a lot of my courage came from the fact that I did have a safety net. Mm -hmm. And I wonder too, how much had to do with what you saw and experienced as a kid, because you had personal pain and you experienced this, this difficult history in your, in your birth country. And I think you just had this almost perfect storm of, and I mean storm in a positive way this, this way to like be self-actualized and to push for what you needed. You sound like you had a lot of grit to be dancing a year within a year of recovering from your surgery, you know, Mm. that Mm. maybe not everybody has that kind of grit. Would you say, do you consider yourself a person with grit? You know, I think that, I, I think that grit came very much from the back surgery from that experience that we don't have time to waste that you know life is only one and health and youth is only once and one it, once you've experienced something like this at 15 being so close to not being able to move your limbs or not waking up on the operating table i think that i i really think that 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 experience with that surgery made it clear to me at that young age, thankfully, that we have to do what we can when we can, you know, mm-hmm. I, I was, I was so grateful that I was able to move and able to go back to, to, to the dance studio and, and just so grateful after that I've survived it and that I could live a more or less normal life with this mm-hmm. rod in my back, yeah. you know, a lot, a lot of my, a, a lot of, Great, and a lot of energy came from that, from just being grateful and thankful that you can and knowing that we are so fragile, you know, that, that just health is fragile and our the good life that we have is so fragile and, and it can all pass within a, a moment like it did for me back then in Yugoslavia, you know, one Sunday afternoon and suddenly and you are out of your home and out of your life and out of like... So your mother... Your, did you say that your mother had cancer? She did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She. And when did she get sick? 
She got sick in 2016, Mm -hmm. four years ago. mm -hmm. And was she living, was she still in Croatia at that time? Yes, she was. And she was. Did you, did you and your son get to spend time with her? We did. Thankfully we did. We, it, it, it was, it was crazy. The year before that, in summer 2015, my husband's cancer came back and my husband went through chemotherapy that whole summer. Mm-hmm. My son was six months old and that was very traumatic for all of us. The, he went through a very, very harsh chemotherapy for three months where once a week I had to drive him to an emergency room. I, I Once a week oh. we thought he's dying from chemo. It was really bad. And so... With a newborn. <laughs> with a newborn. My mom was with me. Mm-hmm. The moment she heard that Nick has to go into chemo, my both parents were like, you, you'll need your mom. You have a six-month-old, you, you know. So my mom was with me and with, she took care, care of Kai while, while I was helping Nick. And... The summer after after that, 2016, to celebrate that Nick is healthy and we are fine, we decided to spend a longer time in Vienna and on our island in Croatia. I always say our island and Nick is saying, be careful. People will think that you own an island. I don't own an island. It's a tiny little <laughs> island where we come from. Um, <laughs> you own it in spirit. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, by that summer, my mom started coughing a lot and getting this pain in her neck. Basically, we arrived to the island, Nick, Kai, and I, uh, to to spend time there. And we're waiting for my, my mom to join us when she got diagnosed with lung cancer state at stage three. Uh, so we... Nick was working on a script and thankfully he was flexible and he knows, he knew very well how close I, I, I am to, or I was to my mom. And he immediately said, well, just stay with her. We have to, when you lung cancer stage three is, you, you know that you only mm-hmm. have a few months left. So we, uh, the, she went to Vienna to be with my father and to get treated there and we found an apartment in Vienna and we just stayed. It was crazy. I, mm-hmm, I constantly yes. build new life from one suitcase. This was the third time in my life that I we just went for a summer holiday yeah. and had just this few summer things with us, mm-hmm. the three of us in one suitcase. And we stayed for six months. Um, and my mom, fortunately or unfortunately, passed away eight weeks after the the diagnosis. It went so fast. It was just, it was literally breathtaking. It was a blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's life. As she, as she herself said, don't cry. Mm -hmm. That too is life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So did you get the time? Did you get what you needed from the time that you had with her? You know, my mom and I were always so close, so close that I definitely, even, I think even if I wasn't in Vienna, I don't know, maybe I I definitely did. We were, we were normally, we would be on Skype every day, at least once a day. We were always so close that even when she lived in Zagreb and I lived in Los Angeles, we, we were very, very close and involved daily into each other's lives. And then, yes, this past weeks, 
um, mm-hmm. yeah, I did. I did. I wish I spent more. I, everybody was surprised. We all, including her doctors, thought that we have a few months to go. So I was in the hospital with her every day for a few hours. I Had I known that I only had a few weeks, I would have spent more time with her in the hospital. But I was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I had a small child and this new life in, 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 and husband in this new city, I was trying to balance my energy between them and myself, keeping myself above the water and my mom. Had I known I only had a few weeks, I think I would just spend much more time with her in the hospital, but it is what it Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. And so these days, do you feel that your life, would you say is pretty stable? No, <laughs> I do. As I do not believe in stability of my life. <laughs> so, so can you talk in the last few minutes we have remaining? Can you talk a little bit again about um, the inspiration for your podcast and uh, a little bit about the kind of guests you're getting? And then I will have you tell listeners where they can find you and read your work. Uh, so the, the inspiration came from the book I started writing, you know, so I, when I lost my mom, one of the things that surprised me where I, I started panicking that I'm going to forget all the things she told me and taught me. So quite early on, after I lost her, I started writing down everything she, she told me and she was trying to teach me. And, um, last spring around this time, I had a health scare, which thankfully was just a health scare. And I thought, if something happened to me now, what would be one thing that I regretted, you know, not doing? And this was this was the lessons from my mom. So I immediately started working on the book and started working on these lessons. And as I told you, that took a shape on its own. And it slowly it it grew and grew and grew and became her biography. And when I was telling my friends about what I'm working on, I love that they all started thinking about the lessons they learned from their mothers. And we always started talking about that. And I realized that I found a treasure, <laughs> you know, I realized this is such an amazing topic and, and it's so obvious, but we never, ever articulate it. We never sit down and think, what did I learn from my mom? What did she teach me? And what did I have to learn myself? Because she wasn't able to teach me. Uh, and this is how I then spontaneously, it just happened. I, I thought this would be a perfect podcast, especially because I'm, I'm, I'm connected to women from all over the world. I, it's important to me that it's very, very different women from different countries, different backgrounds, young, old, professional, not professional, you know, it, it's a whole range mm-hmm. From a stay-at-home mom to Betty Davis, <laughs> I love her episode. But yeah, it's it's it's. I'm I'm very in love with the project, and I find every episode just so enriching and such a beautiful treasure. And these women talk about themselves, and then they talk about their mothers' lives, and these lives are just amazing. You know, it's you listen to this, and it helps you to become very grateful for your life and 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 get some kind of 
perspective on our lives and what we are doing and what we should be or could be doing. It- I think I, I I think you have had so so many hard things in your life and also so many really great things. Do you see it that way? Mm. I do. I do. It's I would I would never change my life. I I yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's it's dense and thick and up and down and crazy and painful and insane and but but so rich and juicy. I I would I I would not change it for anything. <laughs> <laughs> so where can listeners who want to learn more about you find you? Oh, they can find me on my website, which is tighter.com, and that's spelled T-A-J-D-E-R. And uh, they can find the podcast everywhere where they find podcasts. And the podcast is called Thank You, Mama. Uh, and they can find my books on Amazon, but they o- were only published in German and in Croatian. Mm-hmm. So they have to learn German <laughs> or Croatian to read it because American publishers, I, I tried getting it published, but they didn't think the topics were interesting to American mm-hmm. readers. Mm-hmm. Maybe the times have changed. My husband thinks I should try again. But yeah. Okay. That's it. Thank you. Thank you, mama.net uh, or tighter.com. And wherever there are podcasts. Wonderful. <laughs> Anna, thank you for for sharing your experience and and your story. I really have enjoyed learning how you lived and how you became who you are. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I love the topic of your podcast. It's it's fantastic. I am a true believer in the moments and life changes and life stories. I love it that you're doing this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening.